I'm Joshua Best. I'm Jacob King. And this is Somebody, Somebody Else's, Else's Favorite Songs. Casual popular music discussion spanning the past 70 years. We talk about the music you love. And the music you should know that you may not. You are listening to Episode 10. Our interview with the legendary singer-songwriter, Mr. Bruce Chanel. Totally thrilled to have the legendary Bruce Chanel with us Absolutely. here on somebody else's favorite songs. Um, music lovers know his name, and just about everybody knows his classic 1962 recording, the worldwide number one smash hit, Hey Baby. And we're going to talk about Hey Baby, of course, with, with Bruce, but his involvement in the music scene extends far beyond that record. And so, uh, though I do want to talk about Hey Baby, I also want to get more information and stories about the broad spectrum of things that he was involved in and, and has been in as someone who's literally been in the music and uh, music business in one way or another for over 60 years. So welcome, Bruce. Thank you for joining us. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate it so much. Well, we'll just jump right in then with uh, the, the very beginning. Of course, Bruce was born in Jacksonville, Texas, not too far from where we're recording in Longview. Um, we want to start off with you telling us about your growing up days. And I know music was big in your family and continues to be big in the whole family. But uh, tell us how that influenced you and how you decided that you wanted to make music your life. Um, my immediate family uh, was really musical. All my brothers sang. My mother was a singer, uh, not professionally, but she had a beautiful voice and was always singing hymns around the house doing her housework and stuff like that. <clears throat> My dad played a harmonica <clears throat> and then sang uh, some. And uh, so I had a cousin that came to live with us, uh, Snooky Rollinson. And uh, he worked with my dad in construction, but Snooky knew how to play guitar. So my dad had wangled a guitar from a guy that he had done some work for. And uh, it was a Stella classic, big old, big old yellow guitar. And I, I was so small, I couldn't get my arm up over the top. <laughs> but my cousins could, and my uh, and my older brother, John. And uh, so Snooky taught John a few cards, and then I'd sit around and watch. I was probably four at the time, and I'd watch them. I loved the sound of it. And I loved to go to sleep at night, hearing them in the next room playing the guitar and singing, and then trade around and play different things, you know. So I'd go to sleep listening to that. And uh, so by the time I was five, they had taught me G, C, and D, 
and I could barely reach the strings, but I could get a sound out of it. So after a year or two of working on it, I could finally uh, do a whole song through, and I'd learned Y'all Come by a school teacher named Arlie Duff. Yeah, I don't know if y'all remember, it's an old song. Y'all come, y'all come to see us when you can. Oh, yes. <laughs> I know that song. Grandma's <laughs> are grieving even though they're leaving. You can still hear Grandma say, y'all come. <laughs> uh, Ricky I, and I, Lucy sang that on I Love Lucy one time. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I learned that song. and um, So that's what I would uh, was based on, and I, I learned the the rhythms, you know, and, and a few more chords and that kind of thing as time went on. But for that time, that was my basic introduction to music. Um, from just listening to the radio and I'm loving the music and then folks around the house being able to play was a big help to me to learn an instrument. Right. What what kind of music were you listening to on the radio back in those days? Um uh, well the most that you had coming through the radio was like country. Uh, we liked the Grand Ole Opry, but it was so far away it would fade in and out, you know. So oh, you couldn't get it. Yeah, we we could get it, but you, you could bet that somewhere during the program, right in the middle of Hank Snow's uh, lead guitar on Golden Rocket or something like that, it would fade out and just drive me nuts. You oh know? man, we'd come back in and then the so solo would be over, and I missed it. So you missed it. <laughs> <laughs> missed the good parts. Yeah. But mostly country, and and you would hear, uh, you know, different Frank Sinatra, Vaughn Monroe, all the big pop singers of that time. You know, yeah. How much is that doggy in the window? Patty Page and Homer and Jethro and all these great acts. You know, so um, and that was my education in music in Texas, and we lived at uh, Jacksonville till I was about three, I think it was two or three. Then we moved to Longview which is not that oh, I didn't bad. know that. You know? Yeah. So that's where my grandmother lived. And we lived there for a couple of years. Then my dad was called uh, to Grand Prairie, Texas, uh, to work for North American Aviation during World War II. He was a machinist, they taught him. And uh, so he worked there. And we lived with my aunt in Oak Cliff in Dallas. And uh, during that time, we built our own home, um, south edge of Dallas, uh, Loop 12, and um, and I lived there and started the school in Dallas at Lisbon School, which was about a mile away or so from us, and that's where I started the school in Dallas. Then when I was about 14, uh, Dallas had gotten so big, and there were so many, there were like gangs and trouble happening, my dad didn't want us to be mixed up in that, so he moved us to Grapevine, which had a population of 1,400 people. And it was great. Uh, after I went to junior high school, started junior high school, and finished high school at Grapevine. And uh, during that time, uh, my dad was always really helpful, uh, and my mom, my whole family, always encouraging me to keep going and keep doing it, you know. And uh, so my dad would help me do different things. Uh, he got the city in Grapevine to loan us uh, a vacant building on Main Street to make kind of a youth club out of it. And so well, I had a little band, two or three piece band, you know, just friends. And uh, we would play there on a, on the weekend. So the kids had some place to go. And I think they charged them a quarter to get in to pay for electricity and whatever. 
But that was a good starting and a good thing. And then my dad asked me, he said, have you ever thought about going? I had done the Big D Jamboree in Dallas. I'd won a contest and been on there one time. And then my dad said, have you ever thought about doing the Louisiana Hayride at Shreveport? And I said, well, I have thought about it, but my, this old guitar is kind of beat up, and I need a better instrument when I do a show like that. So the next week he came home with a, he worked at a trailer factory building house trailers. And uh, he made $45 a week. This was 1956, seven. And uh, he paid $365 for a jumbo J200 Gibson guitar Whoa. leather case. That was the most beautiful instrument I'd ever seen in my life. Definitely. And he said, uh, see, if, see if this one will work. So I'm all, oh, man, I would just wow. <laughs> see if this will work. <laughs> yeah, and, and it worked fine. And he said, okay, this weekend, let's, uh, we'll get mom and load up and go to Shreveport and uh, see about getting on that show. So we did that that Saturday. Of course, my brothers had other things to do. The girlfriends and whatever, they were busy, so they didn't want to ride to Shreveport. So we took off, the three of us, to Shreveport and uh, went to KWKH, which was the station that the program was uh, on the air on, on the Louisiana Hayride. So we went to the station. Dad went in and uh, introduced himself and found Tillman Franks, the guy that managed the show. And said, "My, I brought my son down here, and I want you to listen to him if you've got time. And he said, well, I'm really pretty busy. If you could come back next week, it would be better. And my dad said, well, we could do that. But we drove down from Fort Worth early this morning and uh, to see you, especially to see you. And he said, uh, well, come on in. So they, Mom and I went in. With, uh, he came and got us, and we went in his office and and he said, well, play, play me a song. So I got the guitar out, and I played him Marty Robbins' song, I think it was. Or something. That's what you do country. It was a country show. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, I like Little Richard and, and Jackie Wilson and all the great pop, you know, rock and roll stars of the day, too. <clears throat> but they didn't want that on the show. They want country. It's a country show. <laughs> so I'd do Marty Robbins and different songs like that. And I sang him several songs. He suggested that's fine. He said, uh, can you be on the show tonight? And I, <laughs> I said, yeah, I've got a, I've got my show jacket in the car. So, uh, uh, I, I did, I played the, the show that night and then, uh, they signed me and I stayed there for six months. I'd go, mom and dad couldn't go every week. Uh, so I arranged to, I, they would take me to Dallas and I'd catch a train, the Texas Pacific Eagle, <laughs> down to Shreveport every Saturday morning early and I'd get there about 10.30 and go to the radio station and Bob Sullivan, an engineer that I'd met, was there and he operated the station, you know, and kept the programs running and all that kind of thing. And I, so I'd hang around with him and watch TV in the afternoon and then later in the afternoon I'd go to this Chinese place right down the street and they made the best cheeseburger in the world with fried <laughs> and, and a glass of iced tea <laughs> and I'd uh, and then and then wait until showtime and go you know hang around there until showtime which is normally people start showing up about six o'clock or so and I think the show actually started at 7 30 so uh, I'd be there and, and be ready and uh, go out and do my two songs <laughs> and first I was doing one song and then they said we'll do two 
So I'd, I'd come back and I'd do two songs. So I got to do two songs every week. And um, it was just a great experience. I got to meet a lot of people. The, they had big stars would come in and head the show, you know, Ray Price, uh, you know, just all the big singers, Johnny Cash, uh, a lot of people, you know, had come to play that show. And I'd get a chance to meet some of them, and, it, and that was fun. Johnny Johnny Horton, uh, Battle of New Orleans. Oh, definitely. Yeah, One Woman Man and Honky Tonk Man and all that. He was a big star at the time, and, and he was a friendly guy, nice and and helped a lot. He'd he'd always come over to me and say, he knew that I'd just gotten through singing. And I'd come off the stage and he'd come from the dressing room area and he'd come back and say, Have you been on yet? <laughs> and he knew so well, I just finished, you know. <laughs> he's just joking with me. But he was always trying to teach me how to break my voice. You know, I don't know if you remember Johnny singing, but on North to Alaska, when he sang the word north, listen to the end of that note. It says north, but it rings at the end of that real high ring. Uh-huh. And he and Elvis were the only two I knew that could kind of reach that thing. And he tried every weekend, he'd try to get me to do it. And I couldn't quite <laughs> <laughs> keep on trying, you know. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, so and he's the one that signed co-signed my contract when I was signed to the Hayride. Johnny Horton's name is down wow. below mine as a witness. Really, his manager at the time, and Tillman was also Elvis's manager when he was at the Hayride. Then Tom Parker picked him up from there and moved on. You know, right? But Tillman uh, was a bass player, and he played on the road with Johnny Horton and Tommy Thomason played guitar, and um, they did all those great songs together. And uh, so it was just a great experience. But that's kind of what got me started at the Hayride. Absolutely. So I got Needless. a little thing here. I don't know if you can. I'll try to hold it where you can see this. Oh, sure. But this is, uh, uh, I, this thing's kind of backwards, so it's hard to figure out. But this is September the 20th, 1958. I hereby acknowledge receipt of $16.50, which is in full payment <sighs> for services rendered on the KWKH Louisiana Hayride this date, signed Bruce Chanel. I got $16.50 a show, and it cost a dollar and a half union dues, and my train fare was $11.60. Oh, no. So I got home with a dollar. <laughs> this is a book that a guy just sent me. I didn't know about this. I'm mm -hmm. sorry about this, but I'm not used to working up and down. On a, You're all right. We can see it really okay. fine, Bruce. But this uh, is about the Louisiana Hayride, and it's called Cradle of the Stars. Uh, uh, KWKH and the Louisiana Hayride. It's a total history from the beginning with Hank Williams and all those people. But here's a page that when the guy wrote the book and put it together, there's old Bruce. <laughs> oh, there's very young Bruce. <laughs> yeah, that's there. I keep turning backwards. Sorry, <laughs> but that's the that's what's in the book like that. It tells about my time there and. Uh, I was there for uh, about six months. I worked about six months from that show. And uh, it's by a guy named Joey Kent. The book is his father uh, gathered up all the applicable pieces of information and put the book together from the beginning until the show is no longer on the air. I don't maybe once a month or something like that, but not like it was. But yeah, everybody in the music business came by and did this show. 
uh, it, they were usually on the Opry, but this was a second chance for me to get a big audience, you know, for okay. country music. And, uh, you know, Jerry Lee, Hank Williams, uh, there's old Elvis right there when he was on the show. Just a young boy. Really young Elvis. Yeah, really young. And uh, they, he wasn't appreciated at first. Uh, he was different, but he was trying to do, he had two records at the time. He had That's All Right, Mama. And right. Milkow Blues, I think, and maybe one other record that was out. And that's the songs he had to do. So the first time he was on, I wasn't there, but the children had told me these stories years later. He said, he said that the first time he played, the people were appreciative of his talent, but they were more used to country sounds, you know? And he had Scotty and Bill with him, so he had the full full treatment and it, uh, I would imagine it always sounded great but it was just different at the time they were used to violins and accordions and whatever you know and Elvis would kind of get into it and he, he said the next week when they announced that he was going to be there you couldn't get in the place and it was mostly young people mm -hmm. they had heard about him and they started showing up in droves and uh, I read a story this uh girl's father had asked her said go down and get me an, an autograph uh i forget who was the artist that week ray price or somebody said i want to want his autograph she said she took the dollar and went down to get the picture with all good intentions but elvis was standing there signing autograph signing pictures for people and she said she was just amazing. She just walked up to him and held her dollar up in the air. And somebody reached over and took it and gave her a picture. And she stood in line and got Elvis's autograph. <laughs> and it didn't dawn on her that she didn't get what she was supposed to until she headed back to her seat. And she thought, oh, I'm in trouble. And she went down and, and sat down and didn't say anything. And her father says, uh, where's my picture? And she didn't want to give it to him. But finally, she handed it and said, she that's not Ray Price. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want that boy's name on there. I said, I wanted that other one. And she said, I'm sorry. I just couldn't resist it. I had to have one. <laughs> so that's kind of my background, getting started in the in the business and, and working with people and doing different shows and things like that and getting used to the rhythm of it, you know? So I noticed with the little contract uh, that you showed us, you're already by that point calling yourself Bruce Chanel. When did you decide to take a, a stage name and what was the impetus behind that? Well, actually, I, I didn't. Um, Tillman, oh, okay. Tillman Franks was the manager of the show and he said, you know, Bruce, he said, Mac Means is a fine family name. Nothing wrong with it. <laughs> but it, it don't have any marquee value. And I think exactly what he was talking about, but he said, look, could come up, come up with something a little more catchy, you know. So I talked about it with uh, mom and dad. And I said, you know, I really don't want to change my name. And, they, and dad said, well, it don't make any difference. We know who you are. He <laughs> said, uh, well, I thought about it and thought about it. So I said, okay, well, I'll take mother's maiden name, Channel, C-H-A-N-N-E-L. And the next week I went back to the Hayride and uh, met Tillman and talked with him about it. He said, that's fine but we'll pronounce it Chanel. <laughs> so okay. at 18, that's how it came about. And that's how it stayed since then. Wow. 
okay. So you did sort of get to choose, but if you had had your choice, you would have just stuck with Mac Means. Well, you know, I, people have different ways of thinking of things, but uh, I, and I suppose Chanel is a better professional name than Mac Means. But uh, so you you just want something that's simple that would roll off people. You know, like I always got to think about it. And I thought, you know, double syllables on both names are the easiest way for people to remember your name. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elvis Presley, you know, it does roll off the tongue, doesn't it? It rolls off when you do it. You know, if you say so, you, it's just you know a matter of taste, I suppose. But uh, I wouldn't have mind if it stayed back means, but it was helpful that it that it was changed because it gave people something to remember it by, you know. Mm-hmm. When Hey Baby came out to all the radio stations, was released to all the radio stations, we sent a, a small, <laughs> a very tiny, very tiny bottle of Chanel perfume. Oh, oh. Every lady that operated the switchboards for the radio stations. Okay. Gave them a bottle so that they made sure that the program director had Hey Baby, which it, it was a good ploy because they all very clever and made sure that the record was available for the disc jockey and but mostly for the radio programmer. So that's kind of the things you run into trying to get a record to happen. I mean, I've done been in studios and, and done a lot of records before Hey Baby, but um, it, it, there's something magical about it when the public takes a song and likes it rather than you, than you as an artist trying to prove a song to the public. You know, it's a lot different. Yeah. And so beforehand, I was cutting records and putting them out and going and doing all the necessary work and all that. But at the same time, you got to have that song that grabs people. And nobody knows what that is. If, mm-hmm. if they did, you know, you'd be the Beatles. But most people don't understand what the public wants from them. So you're guessing and you're putting your best foot forward that you can and that kind of thing. But so uh, I was just so lucky when Hey Baby, and it's a harmonica intro that Delbert McClinton put on the record. Uh, that really, that to me, that was half the record. That was the sound of the record, you know? Mm-hmm. And then coming on with that long first note and, and holding it out, you know, that made kind of a difference. I hadn't heard a record like that, and I didn't even think of it until years later, and I got to thinking, what other records do you know come out with a long note on the front like that? Well, Jackie Wilson had done a few where he held out a note on the front. But the one I remember was a Hey Little One. And it's an old, old, early 50s record. But he starts out with, Hey, little one, where have you gone? That kind of thing. So I don't know if that subliminally stuck in my mind, but that long note on the front just made sense and felt good, you know? Yeah. And uh, sometimes... When we'd play the song, when I first had it written and we'd be at a dance, junior dancing somewhere, you know, playing it, I'd hold that note out as long as I could. (laughs) 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 And sometimes I had good lung power at the time, so I could hold it about halfway through the song. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you knew what they wanted. Once you figured it out, you used it. You knew what they wanted. Like a crowbar. (laughs) 
Well, well you know, yeah, that's just that's just that's part of it, you know. That's Working great. Out. So I would like to know now that we're into hey baby talk. Um, you know, I've known for a long time that you wrote that song with Margaret Cobb. Yes. I can't find really any information out there about who Margaret Cobb was. Um, talk about that, the partnership that you developed with writing and how that song in particular came about. Did y'all write a lot of songs together? How did you know her? Um, I was working in Dallas at a place called Texas Tank. It manufactured uh, butane tanks. And uh, I don't, uh, in Texas, y'all probably know about butane tanks because when I was there, that's what we had for a gas supply. It was a butane tank out in our backyard. And a guy would come in a truck every once in a while and he'd uh, fill it up for us and that kind of thing, you know. So I wound up in a job. My older brother worked there as a supply uh, agent for the company and he got a job, got me a job there. I was about 17. And, um, I, I tried every job that they had. They'd put me on different things to try me out, you know, here and there. And I was really a helper doing whatever. But so I came close to getting hurt three or four different times. One time was a leg press. You're making legs for the tanks and they're in a V shape like this. But when they start out, they're just a flat piece of metal. So you, I'm sitting at this press and you shove this piece of metal up in it and you take the next piece and you hit this brake, and it goes down and presses the leg out into a V like that. When it's through, it's a V like that. And then these ends are welded to the bottom of the tank. It makes feet. So you take the piece of metal and knock that one out that's been pressed, and you put another piece of metal in, and you hit the brake, and it mashes it down. You take the next piece and knock it out. Well... 17, I got into a rhythm and was uh, singing along there and everything's going pretty good until I made a mistake. I forgot to take the piece of metal and knock it out and reached up with my fingers to get a hold of it to pull it out. And the press came down again and caught my hands in there with the leg being pressed out. And I looked at the break and I thought, has it gone all the way to the bottom? <laughs> I didn't know, and I was unsure, and I started to hit it with my foot. It would come back up. So I thought, it, and I had gloves on, but I was pinned in there, and I couldn't get out of my gloves. So <laughs> Ozzy, an old fellow that worked there, he was a foreman, and he came walking around. I said, Ozzy, have you got a minute? Have <laughs> <laughs> you got a minute? <laughs> he said, my God, boy, what have you done? <laughs> I said, I don't know, but I'm afraid to hit that brake again. He said, don't move. <laughs> and he came back in a few seconds with these two giant screwdrivers. And he said, now, when I pull that plate forward, you get your hands out of there. So he jammed those big screwdrivers and pushed back on them just enough that I could, came out. And my gloves were still in there, but I got them and pulled them out too. And then he reached over and hit that brake, and it went down about that much further it would have pulled my arm in there up to the elbow. Probably both of them would have broken both of them. Wow. Uh, so oh, I was lucky there and I got out of that. So they tried to teach me how to cut the holes in the tops of the tank to where you put the fixtures, the gauges. Mm -hmm. I wasn't too good at that. I couldn't follow the line and they're supposed to be round holes and some of them were square. So <laughs> this, this won't work. We've got to try something else. <laughs> So they put me to stacking the tanks. 
I had all different kind of jobs. One of them, they bought some rusty steel. And another guy and I had to get in there with a grinder and grind the rust off the inside of those pieces. Oh, my goodness. And that, that wasn't a fun job. But anyway, that was one of them. So then they said, okay, look, you go work with Buddy, a guy named Buddy, and uh, he drives the heister. And he'll hook a chain on each end of the tank and lift it up. You climb on, on the stack. They're about eight, ten tanks high. And I'm on top, and he swings the heister for me to guide it in and set it on the stack, take the chains off, and he'll get another one. Well, I'm standing on the stack, and I'm hanging on to the, to the top, and I kind of turned around to look to see where the tank was, and the heister had jerked on him a little bit and swung that tank. It swung it back, and then it swung it right toward me. <laughs> End on, it was coming right toward me. <laughs> And I didn't know what to do with it. It was too quick, and it slid right up and hit me right in the stomach. Mashed me against the tank pile, you know, the stack of tanks. Mashed me against them, and but it didn't break anything. And when it swung back, I slid off the stack to the ground. <laughs> Buddy thought he'd kill me. He jumped off that hoster. He said, oh, yeah, oh, you're all right. It's just quite a hazardous job you worked oh, at. Yes, I, yeah, it was. Very dangerous. And it's a good thing you could sing. You wouldn't have lived to 20. <laughs> Buddy, Buddy was so scared. He thought he would kill me. And he was trying to get his cigarette out and light it. And he couldn't. So I, I got his got his matches and, and held it for him where he could get his cigarette lit. And he said, are you okay? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I, yeah, I, I just knocked the wind out of me, you know. So he said, you know what? He said, I'm going to take you over and meet my sister. said, the, she's a songwriter. We had played guitars together before, Buddy and I had, and he's a good guitar player. He said, I want to introduce you to my sister. She's a songwriter. So I, I went over with him to Irving, Texas, and uh, he introduced his sister, Margaret Cobb. And Margaret knew how to write songs already. She she hadn't had big hits, but she had been writing songs all along and knew how to put one together. So we started. Uh, I started showing up. I left the Texas tank job and, and started uh, showing up at her house and then we were writing songs. And then she introduced me to Marvin Montgomery. Marvin's a famous banjoist uh, called Smokey Montgomery from back in the forties and fifties, bells of St. Mary's and a lot of big things that he had recorded, but he was, uh, he was uh, in charge of a group called the light crust doughboys. Okay. And originally, they were Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, but they came out as the Light Crust Doughboys, sponsored by Burroughs Flour Mills in Fort Worth. <laughs> and every day at noon on WBAP, they had a half-hour radio show. And I remember as a kid laying up under the ironing board, kicking at it while Mother was ironing, and she'd have that show on when I was just a kid. You know, Light Crust Doughboys on WBAP for a half hour of music, you know, and little did I know years later, I'd meet the guy that was in that group and, and run it at the time. And he was friends with Margaret and, uh, and I, he had, he had known of me and I, he was down at the Jamboree the night that I played it. So he kind of remembered me. And uh, so we started working together and he, they started uh, trying to help. And he worked in the studios, Blue Bonnet Studios and different ones. And um, we had written all these songs together. And uh, Marvin says, look, I work in the studio with a guy named Bill Smith. He's retired from the Air Force, a major 
in the Air Force, and he's retired, but he dabbles in the music business. And uh, I want you to take a couple of songs to him next Saturday and play them for him. So I took Hey Baby and Dream Girl and uh, I think one other that I had together at the time and went to see him that Saturday and played them for him. And he said, yeah, he said, I like those. We'll make some studio time next week and do those. But he said, I'm doing a girl named Trudy Coleman right now and I need a song for her. I want an answer to hit the road jack that Ray Charles had had a big hit, you know, that one. He said, I want one called Come Back Jack. So we wrote Come Back Jack for her and he recorded it on her. And then uh, that after her session was over, we started working on our stuff. And that's the day that I met Devin McClinton and the Straight Jackets was his group. And they backed up all the great blues players that would come to the Fort Worth and Dallas to play the clubs, you know, um, Howlin' Wolf, uh, all the great blues guys would come up and get Delbert's band because they were so funky and soulful, you know, that he loved, they loved for him to come play with them. He'd back them up at all their club dates around. So I showed him on my Gibson guitar, I showed him the song that I wanted to do, Hey Baby. And then they played it through with me one time and got the feel of it. And um, so um, nobody told Delbert to do this. We just, I had showed him the song and counted it off. And I, one, two, three, four. And then on the downbeat, Delbert came in with the harmonica. I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, uh, we were just playing the rhythm, vamping. But when the kickoff was, the harmonica. Oh, yes. It felt great, you know, when it did. So we recorded it. And then the studio, they said, uh, that sounds good. Let's do it one more time. So we started it over. We did it again. And then Marvin Montgomery says, wait a minute. <clears throat> it needs a spine. I'm going to come in and play piano with you. So he came in and and uh, I never noticed for the longest time, but listening to that record, uh, the whole rhythm thing is kind of wishy-washy. The bass line is not spot on and it kind of washes, but with Delbert's own spot on harmonica and Marvin playing the piano, it's like when you go up to, to the first, uh, actually what it is, is a, Hey baby is a verse and two bridges. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it starts off on the course, you know? Um, uh, so you got your course. Hey, Hey baby. I don't know if you'd be my girl. And then Marvin on the piano goes, before it was just going, shonky, shonko, shonky, shonky. But Marvin goes, don't, 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 don't. When I saw you walking down the street, da, dun, 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 that's the kind of girl I'd like. Dun, 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 dun. You know, put some mm, yeah. spine, he called Definitely. it. Definitely. And on the other part, where it goes, mm, da, 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 when you turn and walked away, da, dun, 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 that's a win. His piano is holding all that wishy-washy stuff together, but it, it makes a, a unique, different kind of sound. And we've tried a thousand times since then to do that. 
And it's just a mistake of nature that it all fell together one day in one swell foop. (laughs) 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 And it it just kind of came together. And uh, from there, it was just, you know, rocked on. you since you had the the magic of that event with Delmer Clinton's part the piano part the the song that you wrote was it at the time were you really thinking you know maybe could this be a hit or or was it just one song in a line of others you've been recording as well well yeah it was just a um it was another song I mean I enjoyed it and and the people that I'd play it to before it was a record uh, a friend of ours had a paper route and we'd, my brother and I would go with him and throw his paper route before we'd go to school. And so I'd had the song written um, probably a year or so before it was recorded. And uh, we had tried it all different kind of ways. Uh, they would sing backgrounds and we'd do it like a doo-wop group, you know. I'd start out singing the chorus, hey, hey, baby. And they would be doing something like one be singing bass and the other was doing another part. And I said, baby, 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 won't you be my girl, baby, baby. Hey, and we'd do it like that riding around, which wasn't bad, a doo-wop version, but yeah. it wasn't the record. <laughs> <laughs> but it said, so you don't know. I mean, I thought it was a good song. Everybody liked it. Everybody enjoyed it when you'd perform it and that kind of thing. But it had no rec- track record, you know. It hadn't been offered to the public or anything like that. I just knew that people liked the song, but I didn't know where it went from there. So Major Bill said, uh, called a friend of his in the studio that day and, and said, uh, I want to play you something. And he played it. And uh, the guy says, oh, I like that. Bill said, do you like it $500 worth? <laughs> I don't know if I like it that much. Bill was wanting money to promote with. 
you know. So he said, okay, you cotton picker, it's a smash. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes and gets his little records pressed up on LeCam Records, takes a five-state area, Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, five states around, and went to every radio station in those states, the big ones, you know, and made sure they had the records and started working it. And uh, little by little, it started gaining ground. And they'd have a contest like at KFJZ in Fort Worth. And they had a battle of the records. And uh, they'd play, okay, this is the winner from last week. We're going to play a new record now. It'd be their top 30. All these songs are the top 30. So if your song beat the song that was being played, your song goes into the top 30. play, And that means you get played every hour. So okay, they uh, it started playing, and, uh, and they said uh, at the end of the contest at first, he says, well, uh, we had a little bitty tear uh, that was written by Hank Cochran. I didn't know that at the time, but I found out later, and, and I got to meet him. He's a great writer. Hank wrote Make the World Go Away, a lot of great songs, you know, but that was his song at the time with Burl Ives, and Burl Ives had a big hit with it. So they said, well, we have a winner. And he said, it's a little bitty tear by Burl Ives. Well, he said, then the switchboard lit up. Kids calling in, you know, and they said, you must be nuts. Hey, baby, it's the best record you ever played. <laughs> Stuff like that, you know. So finally they came back and they said, well, we had to do a recap. <laughs> said, hey, baby, is our winner tonight. So it goes in our top 30. So from there, it starts moving up the local charts. And at KILT, which is a big station in Dallas, it got on their top 30 and started moving up a little bit. KILT in Houston grabbed it, and it started moving up a little bit in their chart. So Bill Smith and I got in his little Carver car and took off to Houston to do a promo show, a cancer show for a KILT in Houston. And as we drove up in front of the hotel we were going to stay at on the radio, says, and here we have our new number one record at KILT in Houston, Texas, Hey Baby by Bruce Chanel. Oh, man, I jumped up and hit my head. And <laughs> number wow. one in Houston, man. Well, that was the first big station that we got in, in Cliff in Dallas, KLIF. They went to number one, it went to number one in Houston, went to number one in Fort Worth, and it went to number one in all the other stations around in the five states. And then he was selling a bunch of records and made a deal with big state distributors in Dallas, and they were moving tons of records. And then Charlie Fash, or Shelby Singleton, was running Mercury Records at the time from Nashville, called him and said, we want to make a deal. We want Hey Baby on the, on the Mercury label. And Bill said, okay. And he said, but we've got a new label called Smash Records that Charlie Fash is operating for us for Mercury. And we want to put it on that label. It's our new pop label. So he said, okay. So they made a deal. And uh, that's when they, they took it worldwide from there. Mercury did. It was number one locally in our area and everywhere. Then they took it number one in, in the whole country and in most of the world after that. Um uh, and it stayed number one three weeks here in America. So you just don't know, guys. You know, it's it's right around the corner, and you don't know it. You just keep stumbling and working and going forward, and that's all you can do. And it's up to the people then. If they grab a hold, you get lucky enough that 
you need to get some promotion and things start happening. But uh, without that, it, it's really it's a it's a it's a hard business. Yeah. But you've got so you've got to enjoy it from an angle that's not business. It's a whether it's a hit or not. If you're a writer, you have to write another one anyway. You know, if it's a hit, that's great. If it's not, you still have to write another one. So, <laughs> <laughs> so all this happens and you, you you've got this worldwide smash and three weeks, number one in the U.S. And then it comes time for you to go out and tour behind this. Uh, yes, uh, which I wasn't used to. I, w- I was used to doing shows like the Louisiana Hayride, the Big D Jamboree, and you go up and you do a song or two, you know, and like that. But I had never been on a tour. And um, I think it was May, yeah, May of that year, of 62, in May, I was signed. Hey Baby was about number 47 in the national charts. And I was signed to do this tour uh, for a guy named Feldman out of New York. And it was a, a tour with Fats Domino and Brooke Benton, The Impressions, uh, Marie Knight, The Duke of Earl, uh, Don and Juan. You may not know these names, but at that time, they all had big records. Don and Juan were singing, What's your name? Is it Mary or Sue? What's your name? It was a big, big record at the time. And um, Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions, you know, I just enjoyed being around those guys. And Curtis would play on his guitar, you know, and the guys singing harmony. It was just beautiful. It was wonderful to be around and get to see Fast Domino every night, wow. stand in the rings and watch him, you know, 10 feet away. That's awesome. And he'd look over and grin at you once in a while, you know, and playing that piano. And it was, it was a great time. We went from New York City to Houston, Texas on a tour all the way down the eastern seaboard, all the way to Virginia's, all the way on down Georgia, and wound up in Texas. One jump we made when we left New York, though, uh, we played a couple of gigs up that way, and then we jumped all the way over to Denver. (laughs) 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 In Denver, Colorado. And uh, they had a dance team on the show. They were twisters, you know? (laughs) Three girls and two guys, and one of these boys named Waco. And uh, so they could dance up a storm. It was great, you know. But in Denver, <clears throat> two of them got a nosebleed <laughs> while they were dancing. Oh, like, no. <laughs> they done that before. And they came off the stage exhausted, and two of them had nosebleeds, you know, from <laughs> the exertion in that high altitude. But So it, it was fun, and we just, you know, to be with all those guys. And it, it was a new experience for me. I would never played with an orchestra in my life or sang with one, but here we have a 20-piece orchestra, Paul Hucklebuck Williams Orchestra. Paul was famous from back in the 30s and 40s. He had a song called Do the Hucklebuck, Do the Hucklebuck. If you don't know how to do it, man, you're out of luck. (laughs) You know, it was a great, great, great record, but it was his orchestra. Here I am with my J200 guitar showing up in New York City for rehearsals, with a 20-piece orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy asked me, uh, uh, and the bus driver came up, a guy named Gene Sanaki came up to me, and he said uh, that no one knew me. I had just showed up and came from the hotel to the rehearsal hall, and there was a bus outside and that kind of thing. So uh, Gene says, uh, are you Bruce? 
And I said, yes, sir. He said, I, I thought you was a black guy. And I said, uh, well, I'm sorry, no. And he said, no, he said, it's all right. He said, just, he said this, this whole show, you know, there's, uh, there's, no other, there's no other people but black people on this show. And I said, well, you know, okay. I mean, my dad had worked with folks, you know, back in the day. And I had no problems. And this is 60s. This is when the roof was coming off of all that unrest and rage against race and all that. But we were into music. We had nothing to do with any of that. And I loved every one of those guys. We had such a great time together and get to meet those people. And I want to show you, look, here's the show. Uh, it's always backwards on here, so it takes me a second to get it. Where you no, can we can see it. it. That's all right. That looks great right there. Brooke Benton, Fast Domino, Duke, Duke of Earl, Duke, 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 Duke of Earl, Duke, Duke, Duke of Earl, Duke. <laughs> Funny song, but a great guy. He had just gotten out of the army and came and joined the tour. Don and Juan and uh, Harold Cromer was the MC, the little guy in the end down there. He had great big eyes and he, he liked to tell stories on everybody on the bus the next day from the night before. And he was a funny character, but he used to introduce me as the only colored boy on the show. And, <laughs> <laughs> and he said, uh, and I want y'all to know that we make him ride in the back of the bus, you know, uh -huh. that big deal back in. And it's just awful, you know, but I mean, people were laughing. We just had a good time. It was just fun, <laughs> you know, and, but you get to see these great stars every night and you, and, you know, we talk like friends. I think we were friends, you know, and Brooke Benton, I was always looking for advice from, you know, as an entertainer, you know, because he's such a great entertainer and singer. And um, it was just a great time. So we did that for, I think it was two weeks. I think it was a two-week tour. And uh, then the next month when I got home, they said, they, um, Marvin and Bill and the guys that were, kind of having me do the deal, Margaret. Uh, they said, uh, the record's doing really good in England, and they want you to come to do a, a tour in England. I said, okay. Wow. But I'm not going without Delbert. I did this tour with the orchestra, and it was great fun, and the horns are great, and uh, it was wonderful, but it ain't Delbert, and it's not the Hey Baby sound. So if I'm going to England, Delbert's got to go with me at least. If they won't let us take the whole band, and they wouldn't at that time. It's too cost prohibitive to take a whole band. But so I, got, I did get Delbert, and he did the whole tour. We went to England, and uh, I think it was June the 4th through July the 4th. And uh, two weeks of clubs and two weeks of concerts. You know, so um, we get over there and uh, and are doing our deal and meeting people and doing some shows and this kind of thing. And and on one of them, we were booked, you know, with with these guys. Who who are those guys? I, <laughs> up, some random guys there. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's Pete Best on the on over here on the that's on the Pete. left over there. Yeah, I'm pointing the wrong or, way. That's Paul. And there's Paul and George, and that's old Bruce. That's, that's, <laughs> Delbert. that's Delbert, John, and Pete Best over here. And that is a girl sitting behind Delbert. When they took that picture, she just put her foot between his legs. And read, so that's the sole of her shoe. 
I've never noticed that. I've seen that picture. I haven't either. Never noticed. Yeah, so that's just kind of a fun thing about that old picture. But, you know, and, and they were really nice people. We we enjoyed, you know, I didn't, they didn't, weren't doing those songs and they weren't writing those songs. They were doing cover songs and they're doing My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean. They were doing different things, you know, rock and roll kind of things and playing all the shows with American artists that they could. Because John had stated uh, that when they went to America, they were not going to be 14th on the bill. They were going to have a number one record when they came to America. And so. Surely did. Yeah, they certainly did. And th this is the, from that show. We played Tower Ballroom in uh, New Brighton, England. It's just off across the Mersey River. And there you see the Beatles, Beatles and uh, Bruce and Delbert and the Barons and the Four J's and the Big Three. And so that was June the 21st was that show. And I think you can see uh, down there, four and six, five and six on the night. That means four shillings, sixpence if you buy okay. pence, and five shillings, sixpence if you buy the ticket at the door. So how much is that, Chris? Ooh, 50 about, cents? Yeah, about, that. about 50 cents. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but they, the the Beatles were already popular, and they liked Hey Baby, certainly. But there were several thousand kids there that already knew the Beatles and their reputation. They filled that place up. And, um, and that was a great night. I enjoyed meeting those guys. And Ringo since then has cut Hey Baby. And call me on a couple of occasions, and you know, and I can <laughs> thank you so much for doing it, you know. But the other guys, I haven't had conversations with other than when we were there mm -hmm. with them, and uh, they were uh, just you know average great guys. But uh, later on, you know, they shook the world up, didn't they? They did. Oh, that sure did. There's one question about that particular event. You know, the rumor has been debunked that they used to say that Delbert taught John Lennon the harmonica. That's, of course, yeah. not true. Yeah. But I want to know from someone who was there, did they have a conversation about the harmonica? I've heard people say that Delbert gave him some pointers, quote unquote. Did any of that happen? Yeah, we, we you know, we shared a dressing room. Uh, it was pretty crowded. So and we didn't mind. I mean, it was fun. They were fun guys and they had their friends there and that kind of thing. And John had asked Delbert, he said, uh, I love your, your harmonica. He said, could you play something for me? And Delbert got his harmonica out, you know, and played him a few things like that, you know. And he said, man, I love that. He said, I love that sound. I want to use that sometime, you know. And he did on Love Me Do, their first number one record, I think, wasn't it? Love Me Do, use it on Hard Day's Night. He used one again. He said, I've got a harmonica, but it's it's only got a button on it, you know, that you press to change the key like that. He said, I can't play that blues harp, you know, like you do. But he said, I, I sure do love it. Yeah, so Delbert did show him a few things that he played. And, but he said, you know, uh, it's hard to teach somebody harmonica because you can't get up in their mouth and look and see where they're. <laughs> and what you're doing is you're blocking out notes with your tongue while you're blowing in other areas so you don't get mixed notes, you know. And Certainly complicated. Play, yeah, playing single note. And that's really hard on a harmonica. Most people can blow it and slide it up and down, but to pick out a melody and play it note for note on a harmonica, pretty difficult. I think anyway, Deborah don't say that. I think so. 
<laughs> so you mentioned the hard days night, you know, on that album, uh, John wrote and recorded. I should have known better. Is yes. he using your technique there? Yeah. I, I should have <laughs> known Certainly better. He is. Yeah. Oh, that, well, yes. that's, that's great. Yeah. We sure. got Bruce to thank for that one too. Don't we? Yeah, sure do. <laughs> oh, that's, that's great. Uh, the last question that I had regarding those guys was John Lennon's famous jukebox, uh, the records that he kept in there. And, you know, you can read all kinds of times about him talking about Hey Baby and how much he liked it. That had to be a pretty big, big thrill. Yeah, sure it was. At the time, they were just another little local group. So it didn't mean as much, you know. Right. I, mean, I was glad that they liked it and went on with it. But who knew? Nobody else in that whole auditorium except for the kids that loved them knew they were going to be as big as they were. You know, they were just another group at the time. Uh, they didn't even have a record out. But the yeah. kids knew them. And when they showed up, play somewhere, the kids showed up, you know. So, uh, yeah, they were a great group of guys. And uh, I just love their music, and I still do. And uh, I play it and listen to it and love it. They were just so innovative with all their their whole put together. Uh, and it was just great to see that from the ground floor and watch it happen, you know. Wonderful. So, after all of this whirlwind happens, and, and I'm sure it was a whirlwind, but you have so many, you know, great memories and memorabilia and stuff like that. And thank you, by the way, for sharing that stuff yes, with us. That's yes. really, really great. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. Uh, you, you, you come on back and you're continuing and, and you've got several other songs that got into the top 100. Things like uh, Number One Man and Come On Baby, Going Back to Louisiana. So you're continuing to have some sustained success. But at some point, you decided to transition from being a performing musician to a writer. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, and uh, because I had always been a writer and a performer, mm -hmm. but uh, learning the performing part of it was through doing all other people's songs. You know, when you're young and you learn all the songs, you go up and do them. But then the trick to get your own music together and get it out and form some kind of an idea that people can glom onto is a whole different kind of thing. And uh, you're just working, trying to get anything done, you know, trying to get a gig. That's the main thing. Mm -hmm. Make a living is what you're right. trying to do. Right. Um, so after, after all this whirlwind, as you say, uh, uh, Ringo had cut, Hey baby. And, and I had kind of stepped back from the music business. I, I quit touring Christine and I had gotten married and built a house in uh, Colleyville, which is just outside of Grapevine. And uh, we had built a house and we're happy living there. And uh, I was doing some gigs locally around with a couple of friends of mine. And we'd do some things to make extra money and this kind of thing. But I had quit going to the studio and flogging it and trying to get the radio stations and touring and all that. I just wasn't interested at the time. So I took a job with the Parks and Recreation Department. It was a brand new department of Grapevine, the, the town that I had gone to school in. And my neighbor and I went and uh, auditioned for a job for him. And he said, it won't be anything. He said, it's, it's just like the same thing you do around a house. If the plumbing needs fixing, the electrical needs fixing, this needs fixing, that's what we do. And they said, it won't be any problems, nothing you haven't done. So we did, and I worked there for about a year or two, about two years, I think. And it was fun. You know, I, I enjoyed it. I ran some heavy equipment, and we'd build baseball diamonds, and we'd do uh, all kinds of stuff for the city. 
and we had about 160 acres of grass areas that had to be mown constantly. So we had teenagers, summer help, come out and help us do that. And that was always a lot of fun. But, you know, after a couple of years, <clears throat> and I was enjoying it, I was in the shop one day uh, at work and had the radio on and a song came on and I just, I said, man, I don't know who that is, but that's a smash hit record right there. I don't know if you remember the first time, maybe you don't, but you heard Big Bad John. Uh, yes. I knew, everybody knew instantly, that's a hit. Now, so you wonder what a hit is? That's a hit. And you, you can feel it. You know it immediately. It just comes to you, you know? So I was listening and this song came on and played and I thought, man, that is a monster hit. And um, it was, I didn't know it was written by a friend of mine. And it's called, you picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille. Oh, definitely. Four hungry children and a crop in the field. And I listened, I thought, man, that is a monster record. <laughs> so I get a call at home that night that evening when I got off work, I went home and I get a call and it's from this friend of mine, Hal Bynum, who had written this song. And uh, he was telling me about, you know, the song. And I said, man, I just heard that on the radio today. I know that's a monster hit. And uh, he said, well, I'm going to be on the Bill Mack show on WBAP tonight. His, I don't know if you remember that show. It was a uh, midnight cowboy. It was an all night road show for truckers, WBAP. Oh, wow. And he had a signal, clear signal that went all the way from Canada to Mexico, from California to the East Coast. The whole thing was covered. And those truckers listened every night and called in and made requests. And he's the biggest radio show on the air at the time. And Hal was there to do an interview session with Bill Mack. And I knew Bill from when he was at local stations in Fort Worth when I was younger and he was too. He said, I'm going to be out there tonight. I said, come out there and uh, visit with us. And I said, okay. I had been to Bill Max before anyway, but <clears throat> so I went out to, to visit with them and they, Bill interviewed us and talked and we went on and on. And after that's all over, Hal Bynum says, look, uh, why don't you consider moving to Nashville? He said, I think you'll do good up there. And he said, and uh, y'all can stay with me until you find a place, you know. So I, I came home from that and I told Christine, I mean, things were going great, but we were building a house and uh, kind of feeling the itch to do something, you know. So I went home and I told Christine, I said, uh, Hal says we ought to come to Nashville. We could do good there. and We could stay with him until we find a place. What do you think? Well, my folks had just moved from next door. They'd lived there for 30 years or something, but they wanted to go back to East Texas where they were from. So they sold their house and moved back to Lake Palestine and built a house there on the lake. And um, at this time, it's just us and our little house. So I asked Christine what she'd like. She said, well, whatever you want to do, let's go for it. So I made a for sale sign and went out to the front yard to hammer it into the ground. And a couple drove in while I was hammering it in. They said, we won't buy your house. <laughs> <laughs> well, I said, well, okay. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> Everything falling into place at this point. Yeah, their, their name was Alt. They were a young couple. 
wanting to buy a home, you know. So, and they lived, their folks lived down around the corner from us off Glade Road there in Colleyville. And uh, they wanted to buy our house. So I said, well, we talked it over and made a deal with them, you know, and, and sold it to them, loaded everything into the trailer, uh, our poodle. <laughs> the trailer, he rode in the car with us, but he was a little miniature poodle named Fred the Terrible. And uh, <laughs> he lived to set up on the top of all that junk in the car with his head out the window and those ears flying back. You know, well, I think he got wind burn from him blowing so bad. <laughs> anyway, so we, we came to Nashville and stayed with Hal for about a week. And then we located a, a little place over by DuPont High School here in Nashville. And it's just a little row of apartments down, but nice little houses. So we we leased one and, and moved in, moved all our stuff. And I started going to town. And my job with Hal was to come over to his house every morning at nine o'clock and have at least three song ideas. And we would pick one from that and write it that day. So that was my job. I'd show up every Monday morning with three ideas and we'd write one of them. And we wrote about a dozen songs that way together. Meanwhile, he's taking me to tree and introducing me to other people and music publishers and this kind of thing, you know, breaking the ice for me in town. Um, and uh, so I get to meet all these talented people in uh wondering where my place is going to be, you know? And, uh, but as it worked out, they were great folks. And uh, I met Sonny Throckmorton. I don't know if you know Sonny, but Sonny was songwriter of the year three times. So that's the kind of credentials that he has. And uh, I guess that some of his biggest songs were middle-aged crazy, you know, Jerry Lewis and uh, um, Friday night blues and all these songs that have been gone for 20, 30 years now. But the disc jockeys gave him a plaque, gave Sonny Throckmorton a plaque. He, they figured every one of them had played at least one of his songs uh, every 30 minutes on the radio. One of his songs would be played somewhere. And they gave him a plaque for, for all these plays that he had gotten, you know, over the radio. And then he was elected songwriter, you know, three three different times. I and mean, if you get it once, you'd be dead lucky. But people used to follow him around tree. Uh, T.G. Shepard said, Sonny, don't you have a song for me? And he said, well, I had one yesterday pudding, but it got cut. Tree <laughs> <laughs> publishing. Yeah, it was tree Tree Music, Tree Publishing is where I was going at the time. Mm -hmm. Don Gant ran the company for Buddy Killen. And he made him the top country publisher in the world five years in a row. They had more songs, they, but they had great writers. Curly Putman, Green Green Grass at Home. Mm -hmm. Ray Van Hoy, Friday Night Blues with Sonny and a lot of great songs. Bobby Braddock, he stopped loving her today. Bobby, oh yes, he was a writer there. Bobby Definitely was, know that one. Oh yeah, you know, and it, so these great writers, and they're 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 writing the music that the world is singing at the time, you know, and they accepted me as a friend, and I just I would hang out with them, you know, and we'd play, and just have a great time. And then Don Gant decided to start his own publishing company. He had been at Tree for five years before that. 
he started work at Acuff Rose when he was 16. His father died and he had to be the breadwinner. So he went to Acuff Rose and got a job and learned everything about the music and publishing business. And then as he moved on up, he started to work for Buddy Killen, made Tree Publisher the biggest publisher of country music in the world for five years and decided he had to start his own company down at 1225 16th Avenue, which is at the other end of 16th from where Tree is. So we went to the new office and Don wanted me to come and be a part of his company. So we did. And um, we just started writing. But before I left Tree, Don and the, the bunch from Tree used to come. I helped Red Lane tear an airplane apart. He bought a DC-8 that the engines were off of. And he hired a crew of us riders that weren't too busy at the time to come and help him. So we had to take that old plane apart. He took the wings off. They had to cut them off of the torch. But I didn't do that. Another crew did. Uh, and But ours was to take all the screws and bolts completely out of the tail section. <laughs> and all he had left was the tail section, the two wings down, and the fuselage. And loaded all that onto a low-boy trailer and hauled it to Ashland City and put it back together, tied it to the ground, and that's where he lived for the next 20 years in that airplane. Didn't have to paint it or anything. Wow. <laughs> so that's one of the jobs I had at Tree, which was a kind of a fun thing, you know. But uh, So uh, when Don started his place, I went down and started writing him for him. Uh, we had had one hit together at Tree. Uh, but when we were tearing this plane apart, Don came out to visit with us too. And I was sitting on the running board of an old car sitting out there. Don came and sat down beside me and said, how's it going, Brucey? And I said, well, it's going good, but I got to get a song cut, you know? And he said, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. You write me a hit song, I'll go get it cut. Okay. So I went home and started putting it together thinking, man, I got to come up with something to I, I put my blank piece of paper out on the kitchen table late at night and a pot of coffee and uh, sit there for a minute and say, come on, Willie, help me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then I do to start writing. And my sister-in-law had asked me about a song I'd been writing uh, when she was visiting from England, her and her husband. She said, what'd you ever do with that party song you were writing? I said, well, I never finished it. And she said, I really like that. I said, that, that's a good song. So I got thinking about that and thought, well, okay, here we go. So I had the first part. Uh, whoa, whoa, it's party time. Time to get you off my mind. It's early and I'm feeling fine. I'll soon be over you. Whoa, it's party time. Da, 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 da. I had that part. I had the first part. But then the rest of the night I'm thinking, man, it's got to make a change and it's got to say more, you know? So, and I finally came across that little part in the middle where it, where it changes from, whoa, whoa, it's party time, time to get your bob. Darling, ever since the day, that's where it goes. Then it's time to go our separate ways. I've been searching for a way to pay for doing you so wrong. But now it's time to call a halt. You know it wasn't all my fault. You cheated too, but you were never caught. We both lied all along. Whoa, whoa, it's party time. <laughs> <laughs> great, great song. Love that. 
And I thought, well, that's a pretty good song, I think. So the next day I would I go to Tree and I take go up to Don's office and I said, Don, I'll play something for you. He said, okay. He said, uh, go ahead. So I, I kick it up. It's party time. And I sang it for him. He said, yeah, I like that. Let's go to studio. So he got some studio time and we went down and did a demo of it. He took it upstairs to Buddy Killen. Buddy played it and said, yes, I like that. I'm going to do it on TG. So he brought TG in and cut the record on him on party time. We had our first number one. shepherd at tree so when don moved down to his office and i moved down with him um i had to come up with more songs you know you'd keep on writing and he had about five writers signed at a time pretty good writers kicks brooks was one of them oh uh, wow that's cool oh yeah and he had some good writers and sonny throckmorton would come all the time he, he and don were kind of joined at the hip he even though he was signed at tree he was at Don's place all the time, you know? And, uh, and so Ricky Ray, a friend of mine and I, a guitar player that worked all our studio stuff for Don was sitting around writing one day. And, uh, he had this guitar lick going. I said, man, I love that lick. What is it? And he said, I don't know. He said, I just came up with it, but I, I can't figure out what fits it yet. And I said, well, let's fool with it. So he got to going on it, you know, and 
he played that lick. Don't like that. So we got thinking. Stand up. Have you ever been there? Stand up. Identify. I said, stand up. Tell us all about it. Stand up and testify. Well, we got that much of it that day in just a few minutes. And then we thought, we did that over and over for a while. We said, once again, it's got to go somewhere, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Sonny Thought Martin came through the back door, and we were sitting there messing around, and he said, what are y'all doing? And uh, so we said, we got this thing going. And uh, Ray played it, and I sang what we had of it. And Sonny said, I'd help you with that. He <laughs> <laughs> said, come on in, bro. <laughs> So we went to lunch, and while we were riding around and had a sandwich or something, you know, Sonny was thinking all the time, patting on his leg. Like We got back to the office, and he said, try this. Ever had a hot date? One of those can't wait. Thing go a little too far. In the middle of a good night, have you got a ride in the backseat of your car? I said, stand up. Oh, yeah, that fits, man. That's exactly right. So all we needed was two more verses, and that one was whipped out. And uh, so Don said, yeah, I like that. And he went to work on it, trying to get it cut, you know, here and there. And uh, he went to Jerry Kennedy. Now, Jerry was at the Louisiana Hayride all those years ago. He was a guitar player on the show. But now he's working for Shelby Singleton at Mercury Records and producing Tom T. Hall and a lot of other artists, but he did all of Tom T. Hall's records. And when he took this, Don took this record uh, demo to him, a stand-up, he said, see what you think of this. And he played it. And I saw Jerry later on at a golf tournament somewhere, and he was sitting in a golf cart. And as I walked up to him, he said, you know what, Bruce? He said, the minute that Don played that song for me, he said, I heard that beat. I never heard it like that. <laughs> I always heard it kind of bluesy, you know, with the organ and all that kind of stuff, you know, kind of deal. But he was perfectly right because he cut Mel McDaniel on it, and Mel had number one record with it. seat of your car I said stand up have you ever been there stand up identify stand up tell us all about it stand up testify so that was our second number one record with Don and uh so it's just on and on. And these songs that you were talking about, that that's where the Nashville part of our career actually started, you know, it was with Don. He just be believed in me and believed in the, the music. And, and he was in a position that he could get it to some people. And if they recorded them, they would be hits because they were hit artists, you know, and the, and the material fit them. So it, it was just a great experience. And, 
and all the other songs that came out of that time. And I, and I think, I think we had a string of about five there in a row that, that one year. Uh, and I had written, been writing with a guy named Kieran Kane in tree and Kieran got a recording contract with Electra. And we wrote a song together called you're the best. And he had a top 10 record uh, as an artist with Electra record on that. Um, and sometimes it, I got an old album that I, Christine said, you do an album and put all these hit songs together with you doing them, you know, so people can see what you wrote. So that's what we could, I made this, this CD and it's called just Bruce Chanel. Hey, Hey baby, let's party. But on the back of it is, uh, is, is all these songs we're talking about, you know, there's Hey baby. And, um, John Connie cut one called as long as I'm rocking with you, wherever I'm going. Wherever I'm staying, it doesn't matter long as I'm staying with you. Wrote that with Kieran, and John Connolly had a number one record on it. Wherever I'm going, wherever I'm staying, it doesn't matter long as I'm staying with you. Staying And then uh, uh, Janie Fricky uh, was a new artist at the time, and she was wanting songs. So Don had pitched uh, Jim Ed Norman, her producer, uh, a demo of Don't Worry About Me, Baby. He said, there's no way to know how this is all going to end. We fell in love once we could do it again. Makes no difference how it all works out. This night with you is all I'm thinking about. Don't worry about me, baby. So Janie had her first number one record. This night with you is all I'm thinking about. Don't worry about me, baby. I'll be alright. Don't worry about me, baby. Just love me tonight. 
And then the others that I put in here, they they weren't hits yet, but one of my favorites is that that I really love. I'm sorry about that, but I, I'm not used to turning. There's one on the back okay. called Christine, right at the bottom there. And that's one of my favorite songs of all of them. You know? That's not about anybody special or anything, is it? Well, yeah. That, <laughs> that gets me out a lot of dishwashing and stuff. <laughs> it's a good one. It's it's great. He sings for Christine. Yes. We, we like that one, too. Uh, and uh, well, that's basically it, guys. I, I'm still writing, and I still uh, get with Ricky Ray when we can. Of course, like you guys, we've had a snowstorm up here. Nobody's been out of the house for a week. But yeah, well, neither yeah. have we. Yeah, hoping Saturday our weather's and hope yours has changed. But it's snowing again hard right now. Big flakes, big as you thought. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, right now. But uh, this is all supposed to move out of here, I think, Saturday. We're back up 50s above. And maybe this will be gone, but man, you know what? It's been a good lesson, though, hadn't it? Everybody's been saying you got to stay apart, you got to wear your mask and wash your hands. Somebody supplied us with a reason, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we hadn't had any choice. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Bruce, before we let you go, I, I can't help but ask about, you know, we've gone through these phases of your career. The, the Hey Baby phase, the tour phase, the writing phase. And as you're going through with all of that, all of a sudden, Hey Baby, when I'm about 12 years old in 1987, gets popular again 25 years later. Um, there was a little soundtrack album. Uh, how little how was that for you? Sorry? How, how was that for you? Wasn't that quite an experience as to have it as important I, I, again? Bill Smith had been telling me, he said, there's some people want to do a movie, and there's a guy named Jimmy Einert has been calling me about doing a soundtrack for a movie, and he wants to use the original of Hey Baby. And um, they've shopped the album idea to everybody in town, and nobody wants it. And it's on a movie called Dirty Dancing. And so when the movie came out, Christine and I went here in Nashville to the local theater to see it, and when it was over, we came out and uh, I said, well, what do you think? She said, I don't know. It's it's, it's kind of like a teenage movie in it or something. <laughs> but I, we didn't really understand the power of it at the time, you know. But that sucker came out and started rocking. And pretty soon it's all over the world and stage shows. And we were in England visiting uh, Ken folks. And uh, it was a... Uh, I think the name was Lyceum Theater, Lyceum Theater, something like that. It's where they put on Broadway shows, you know, but they're that they're road shows from all over the world. And um, and they were doing uh, Dirty Dancing there. So while we were visiting, we got tickets for Christine and I and for my brother-in-law and her sister. And we went to the show to see it. And it, it was amazing to see it unfold. I didn't know how they were going to do the place with a tree they're dancing on the tree stump you know i mean the, the log there's a big log and they're dancing on it and that's when hey baby is played in the movie in that part and i kept wondering how in the world are they going to get a log on this small stage well when it came time for that they had everything worked out the tree was standing up on the side of the stage you didn't even notice it but when they made the scene change it, the stage go dark and this 
log would just come down. It was on a hydraulic. <laughs> lay it down. And they had silk screen or whatever that made it look like they were in a sea of water and grass around and behind this thing. <laughs> really kind of weird. But it worked out and it worked great. And I thought, good night. That's it. So the, in Australia, they had a bunch of shows of it down there. And um, all, all over the world, they were putting on these shows. And they wanted to go to Broadway. I don't think they ever made it to Broadway with it. Uh, but <clears throat> the, the movie was so doggone big that it just overtook and it just kept growing and kept growing, you know. So And, and it was a great surprise to all of us that it was picked to do that. Uh, in the beginning, though, <clears throat> Bill Smith had told me, he said, Jimmy Einert was told that Motown wanted the soundtrack to the movie. They had made a, wanted to make a deal for it. But they wanted Hey Baby in it, but they were trying to make a recording artist of uh, Bruce. What's Bruce's last name? The big Moonlight TV show and all that. And oh, Bruce Willis. Willis was uh, doing a musical thing then, and they had signed him. And in order, they wanted him to do Hey Baby because it'd be in this movie. And Bill Smith told Jimmy Einard, he said, you know, it's foolish to put anything but the classic in there. And Einard said, I'm in agreement. <laughs> We've got to have Bruce's record of Hey Baby in this movie. So she went back to the people doing the movie. I mean, Jimmy Einard went back to him and said, look, <clears throat> Bruce has got to do this song. It's not going to work. These have got to all be classic songs by the artists that are played in this movie. It can't be a one-off somebody else doing something unless it's a new song, which they did with Time of My Life and a couple of other things that they pumped and made number one singles for the movie out of that, you know. <clears throat> so they did. They finally, they they included our recording of Hey Baby in the movie. And then uh, it just started taking off and the, we couldn't believe it. We I, I couldn't believe it. I thought... I thought it was a pretty good little movie, but after I watched it 10 or 12 times, I saw what it was about, you know? <laughs> and it was a movement of those kids at the time. And that's what was happening in their lives and what was going on. And they made a pretty interesting story out of it, you know? And it made stars out of those little kids. Uh, that little girl Certainly. became a big star. And, of course, uh, the lead role, he, he went on to make other movies uh from that, you know, other hit movies. So it, it was just, it was a great time, completely unexpected. And it, it was like, I went to Germany in 2000 to do a show for the NFL. They had a, a European NFL, National Football League. And a lady named Sanchez had called me and said, would you come to uh, Germany? And I said, I suppose so. What do you want me to do? <laughs> And she said, we have a team here called the Dusseldorf Rheinfire is the name of their football team. And they play in the stadium here every Saturday and they draw about 40,000 people and all the fans sing your song. And it'd be a real treat if you would show up and sing with them. And I said, okay, we can do that. So Christine and I went to Germany and stayed a week and had a great time. And then that Saturday we were brought out to midfield and they played Hey Baby and I was singing it over the deal and they're singing with you and the echo's so bad you can't keep up so I quit singing and just listened to them <laughs> <laughs> wow you know hey, 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 hey. I want to get 
know, <laughs> we're singing and listening to them, but they had a different way of doing it. And that's we'd sing together, we'd go, Hey, hey, baby. Then they would 40,000 of them would go, Ooh. <laughs> I want to know. And the first time they did it, it scared my pants off. You know? <laughs> Hey, hey, baby. <laughs> but that's the way they like to do it. And a disc jockey that day said to me, you need to redo that song. We need to redo it and do it with a different beat and everything and bring it out as a new record. And I said, okay, I'm in Nashville. You're in Germany. Make me a track and let me hear from you. <laughs> well, I didn't. But the next year, DJ Oatsy came out with that exact idea and with, hey, baby, ooh, ah. <laughs> <laughs> and he sold about three million records. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Keep on, you know. number one in Australia, Ireland, Scotland, UK. Uh, how many times has Hey Baby been number one? <laughs> well, a few times. I got up one day and number ones, uh, my record is 62. And then Jose, it wasn't number one, but Jose Feliciano cut it back in the 60s. Then Ringo Starr cut it on his Rodo Gavira album. Then Ann Murray cut it and had a number one record in the 80s. And then DJ Oti did it and took it to number one again. And uh, no, Pat Boone was the number one, but it, it had been cut by a lot of different. Jay Lee and Pat Boone and everybody in the world had done a take on Hey Baby at one time or another, you know. Did but you I, have a favorite version that somebody else did that you really liked? Uh, well, the, the reason I liked Ann Murray's is because it took it to another level. She said, hey, hey, baby, I want to know if I could be your girl. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So that, that gave it a different slant. I got another call one time from England, uh, a group called the Farmers. I had never heard of them before, but they said this guy from the publishing company said, uh, this group is has cut Hey Baby and it's going to be a big hit. And he said, uh, um, there's a, he played it for me. And he said, uh, there's a guy rapping. It's going, boom, ba, 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 ba
And then these girls come in singing, hey, hey, baby, I want to know if you'll be my girl. Uh, and uh, so uh, I thought, okay. And then, then the guy says, well, since they wrote this other part to it, I think they deserve part of the writers. And I said, uh, it's a little late <laughs> to argue about who wrote this song. You know, if you want to <laughs> use it, that's fine. But we're not giving you any writers, you know. Um, and, and so that's the way that went. But they never re they never released it. And, I, and I'm glad because that would have taken it to a whole I don't know what kind of level, but there's all kind of different records come in. People want to do it, this, that, and the other. And you have no control. Once it's recorded, anybody can record it and do anything they they want to, you know. But they still have to give you credit as a writer. That's that's the only thing. But I don't mean to go on and on. You guys have been really patient, and I enjoyed talking with you. And, and We've enjoyed it so much. Absolutely. And cannot thank you enough for, for spending the time. There's so many things in there I've never – I've never heard you talk about before uh, that it's been news to me and, and just fascinating. It, it, it's, it's time that's just flown by for me. So thank you Absolutely. so much. And definitely thank you for taking the, your, taking out part of your time to join us for our inaugural interview episode. It's been <laughs> well, brilliant. Great. I, and I appreciate your time and, and your talent and appreciate you doing it. This is just a magazine from uh, Delbert McClinton, Sandy Beaches Cruises. We did one every year. Christine and I have been on 25 of them. So that's 25 <laughs> years cruising. And it's nothing but music from 12 o'clock at daytime till 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Then everybody gets something to eat and goes to bed, and you start the whole thing again tomorrow. And it lasts for a week. But this is the just a magazine. There's Leroy Parnell and uh, a lot of the different artists that, that have been there and go on the tour. There's that's old Bruce down the corner there. <laughs> when you do songwriter shows and, and Delbert plays with the full band, they have lots of great groups. And it's Delbert's cruise called Delbert McClinton's Sandy Beaches. And uh, it's just a wonderful time for everybody. And we didn't do one this year. As you know, nobody did anything this last yeah, year. That's right. Maybe not even this next year. But hopefully after that, if uh, – if we're still rocking, we'll be doing that again. So that's something to think about. If you want to take a cruise with us, we'll be doing I, it in a year. I think that's something that that's, we should definitely tempting. put on the calendar. Yeah, we should tempting. definitely go and do that. That would be would just be great. So, I'll let you know so much fun. Comes back around, I'll let you know. Well, thank you so much. Well, again, uh, this has been uh, our time with Bruce Chanel, uh, Bruce Hey Baby Chanel, uh, so graciously spent the time with us telling uh, about his life in music as a performer and songwriter. Thanks again, Bruce. Uh, we love you and we can't wait to talk to you again sometime. Absolutely. Y'all be safe up there. Thank you, Joshua. And thank you, Jacob. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Bruce's first album, Hey Baby, as well as his 2004 album, Hey, Hey, Baby, Let's Party, is available on Apple Music and Spotify. You can find us on our Facebook page, as well as anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Please join us soon on our website, sefs.show, where we'll have a video version of this episode, as well as a Spotify playlist, uh, including the hits that Bruce has written. We hope you'll join us next time. Until then... I am Josh. I'm Jacob. And this has been... Somebody, somebody else's, else's Favorite, favorite Songs. songs.